Welcome back to Athens' favorite history podcast. You know who we are. I'm Zoe. And I'm Jada. And this is 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 This Too Niche? Niche? It has been a crazy fun past five episodes, and this is going to be our last episode until January. So we'd like to thank all our listeners and all the support we've gotten, but especially our listeners from New Zealand, Romania, the Netherlands, Argentina, and Turkey. It's crazy that we've made it international. Yeah, we love and thank you. It is actually crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Today's episode is one we both are incredibly excited for because this person stole the hearts of, let me just say, everyone. And me even more so after researching her, and I am a, if you didn't read the title, diehard Princess Diana lover. Mm -hmm. So let's get into her story. Diana Frances Spencer was born on July 1st, 1961 into an aristocratic family. She lived in Sandringham on the Queen's estate that her family rented with her two older sisters, her younger brother, and her mother and father. And we cannot forget her dogs, cats, hamsters, rabbits, and horses. To my understanding, Diana had a pretty vibrant childhood. She was a huge animal lover, which is obvious with all their animals they owned. Her family was quite close with the royal family. Her father was the royal equerry for King George IV and Queen Elizabeth II. It was said that Queen Elizabeth II was actually her brother's godmother, and she even attended Diana's parents' wedding. Diana would also regularly play with, at the time, Prince Charles's siblings. Her childhood wasn't all picture perfect. When she was seven years old, her parents had an abrupt divorce and a messy custody battle that resulted in her mother leaving the family for another man. Now, in some accounts, they talked as if her mother left and never came back and started a new family, but in others, they would say that she, com- she was completely kept from their house and she was incredibly upset about it. So it was kind of unclear. Mm-hmm. When Diana's siblings recounted their childhood with Diana, they described her as a motherly figure to them, even at her young age. So unbrand for her. Mm-hmm. When Diana was nine years old, she was sent to an all-girls boarding school called Riddlesworth, which she was incredibly unhappy about. And you can actually see the picture on her Instagram. She looks very angry about it. She told her father, if you love me, you won't leave me here. But he did. School was not a strong suit for Diana. She failed her O levels, which I believe are like the gen eds. I'm not positive. Probably. But probably like the gen eds. Mm -hmm. She failed them twice and altogether dropped out of the boarding school at 16. She was, however, very into sports. During school, she was an avid swimmer, skier, tennis player, and above all, wanted to be a ballerina. Although her ballerina career was cut short at the age of 17 because she was too tall for the career. She was 5'10". We love a tall woman. Literally. (laughs) After boarding school, she attended Institute Alpin Vindemanet, a finishing school for wealthy students. She attended this school alongside her sister, Sarah, who was at the time dating Prince Charles. So that was the first that Diana and Charles were acquainted. Their age difference at the time, if you must know, was 16 and 29. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. After finishing school, Diana had a few odd jobs like cleaning houses, serving appetizers at cocktail parties, babysitting, and even working as a kindergarten teacher. And people who are good with kids or arguably some of the best people, even okay. though I am incredibly bad with kids. No, me too. Can I throw in some of my own knowledge? Yes, please. I think it's really interesting because even though she came from, like, a wealthy family, she kind of paved her own path. When yeah. she graduated, she, like, lived in an apartment with her friends and worked 
with kindergartners, like, not quite what you would expect from someone who grew up in the aristocracy, and I no, absolutely, that yeah. because the British aristocracy kind of flops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. No, yeah, and the fact that, like, she's working these odd jobs. She didn't need to work the odd yeah, jobs. no. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. She is a cool person, as we know. Charles and Sarah in 1978 broke up after Sarah had allegedly met a journalist and told him she wouldn't marry Charles if he were the dustman or the king of England. Yikes. Fair. Which I feel like is kind of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Sarah actually was the one to reacquaint Charles and Diana in 1980 during a weekend stay at a mutual friend's home. An update, during this time, Diana was only 18 and Charles was 30. In an interview, Charles was quoted saying, I remember thinking what a very jolly and amusing and attractive 16-year-old she was. I mean, great, fun, and bouncy, and full of life and everything. Okay, literally, like, disgusting. Yeah, yikes, again. Their relationship began to blossom more and more through the year, and the public started to suspect. And in September of 1980, cameras captured Diana at the royal family's private estate, and their secret was out. Now, before Diana, Charles had an on-and-off relationship with a name that I'm sure you're familiar with, Camilla Parker Bowles. And I have, remember thy name. (laughs) Yep. And there was a huge amount of pressure on Diana and Charles. Charles was being pressured to find a wife. His father told him to marry Diana or move on. And there was also loads of pressure from the press who were going crazy, painting the couple as a fairy tale story when they were still only just getting to know each other. So this leads to February of 1981 when Prince Charles proposes to Diana And Diana had mentioned that they had only gone on about 12 dates before he proposed, which is average, right? (laughs) No. I'm just kidding. No, yeah. No. Um, No. Only Mm -hmm. only seeing someone 12 times. No. (laughs) And when asked by a reporter if they are in love, Charles famously replied, whatever in love means. Like, okay. I hate him. (laughs) Yeah. A month after their engagement, Charles flew to Australia and New Zealand for five weeks, and Diana was spotted crying at the airport. She recounts this moment in her documentary that she was actually crying because Charles had taken a phone call with Camilla Parker Bowles, his ex-girlfriend, and it just broke her heart. This was only the start of a toxic relationship. On July 29th, 1981, 750 million people watched as the couple were married at St. Paul Cathedral. This was the first time a British citizen was to marry the heir to the throne since 1660. So her wedding was monumental and a bit messy. Before the wedding even started, Diana was having second thoughts. She confided in her sisters about wanting to call off the wedding, but they told her that it was too late to back out. red flags from the start like if you don't want to go through with it then don't if you didn't know diana was a modern woman she did not want to stick to a thousand year old royal traditions that were built around a patriarchy a few traditions she broke during the wedding was for one the venue normally would be held at westminster abbey 
Secondly, during their vows, Diana was to vow to obey Charles and with the support from him, refused to say that part. As she should. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After their vows were exchanged, Charles actually forgot to kiss Diana, but they later made up for it by kissing on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, which inspired future royal couples Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson in 1986 and William and Kate in 2011. So cool. In the unreleased tapes recorded by Diana, which I'll talk about a little bit, she declared the wedding being the worst day of her life and she said if i could write my own script i would have my husband go away with with his woman talking about camilla Mm -hmm. and never come back and these tapes were recorded by diana and they were meant to be unreleased but they got released Mm -hmm. and we we never knew if she actually wanted everyone to hear it but i mean if she was recording it probably wanted people to hear it yeah The people quickly fell in love with Diana's philanthropy, style, and fact that she was unwilling to conform to the predetermined lifestyle of the monarch. Now, I know many of us know Diana as the fashion icon she was, so I'm going to send you over to Zoe's Corner to be blessed with tasteful knowledge. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, welcome to another segment of the Zoe Corner. So, I know that the last time we did the Zoe Corner, I also talked about fashion, but I, like, literally had to talk about it oh absolutely this topic so we're going to be taking a look at princess diana's fashion but we're going to be making it historical so we all know and love princess diana's looks she's known for her casual sweatshirts the infamous revenge dress but i actually want to take more of a systematic historical look at her looks first i'm going to give you a bit of a timeline on her style by putting it into a lens of fashion through the ages and then i'm going to talk about her impact on fashion in the modern era so we're going to start from the beginning As we know, Princess Diana came from aristocratic yet also humble origins. She didn't seem to be one for much grandeur. She famously said that before marrying Prince Charles, she had a very minimal closet. Her pre-marriage fashion was influenced by a bit of a country look. She wore dresses, tweed suits, short sleeve blouses, and this obviously had to change when she entered the royal family. It was actually part of her royal duties to present herself in a certain way. Vogue actually famously instructed her that she had to dress a certain way, but she later took control of her own fashion, and we will see that As she in should. a moment. So we're going to start talking about her wedding dress. It was made by David and Elizabeth Emanuel and came in a grand total of $115,000. It has been known as a fairy tale dress. The lace gown was spun at a silk farm in Britain. A blue bow was added to the waistband. A lot of the parts of her dress kind of tie into that wedding tradition of like Mm -hmm. something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Yeah. So that's where the ribbon comes in. She wore the Spencer family tiara from the 18th century, something old. The lace on the dress also belonged to Queen Mary, another thing that was very old. And borrowed too. Borrowed, yeah, yeah. And these details tie her to the culture of royalty. They kind of helped to legitimize her. The shoes that she wore were elaborate silk shoes. They had the letters C and D on them to unite the couple. They were also like not very high heels because she was very tall and poor Charles couldn't be emasculated. No. And they were the same a, height. Yeah, by having a wife who would be taller than him. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's look at the bigger picture of the dress, the very big picture. Her dress was so big that it famously barely fit in the carriage. You can see a picture of her, like, stuffed into the carriage. On top of this, her veil was longer than the train of the dress. The train of the gown was 25 feet, which is nothing compared to the 40-foot veil. Mm -hmm. The dress had the 
poofy 80 sleeves it was hand embroidered with pearl details not much about the production of the dress is known to the public it was kept under tight wraps the people who were making it kept it in a safe so it was a big deal when it was debuted they actually made two wedding dresses because they were so scared that it would get leaked Mm -hmm. and I don't know, I, th- I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. And then they also sewed in a golden horseshoe into the tags yeah. for luck. Mm-hmm. And she was, like, so happy about that. Yeah. Because it's so, like, personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. It's really cute. They also literally, like, made a really expensive umbrella. It's, like, covered mm-hmm. in pearls, and it wouldn't have been functional at all, but they made it literally just in case it rained. Oh, my god! Which is cool. <laughs> but also it wasn't functional so it wouldn't have really been that helpful <laughs> just for the looks yeah i mean it w- yeah it wouldn't cover her dress at all no not even a little bit no but love them for it yeah her dress went to her sons in her will and her engagement ring which was sapphire and diamond was given to prince harry but he gave it to his brother william who used it to propose to kate not only was Diana's wedding dress a statement maker, but her ceremony itself, as Jada said, broke a few traditions. She refused to say the word obey. And Kate also did the same in her wedding to William. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. At first, Diana's clothes were made mostly by British designers, but once she took control of her own fashion, she turned to more international sty- stylists like Versace and Chanel. Diana's fashion combined a taste for the eclectic and the antique with new innovative fashions of the time. She actually is credited with like revitalizing the dying industry of hat making because she would wear like accent hats. She popularized wearing hats to weddings. Icon. um, Which was a trend of the 60s and 70s, but she brought it back. Her casual yet high fashion streetwear was a staple of her gym fashion. She would wear... Big sweatshirts, high socks, chunky sneakers, and tie it all together with accents like purses and sunglasses and jewelry. Something I try to emulate on my little Starbucks runs. (laughs) (laughs) She stayed true to her love of the country look and her country roots, which I love. Her big hair was a staple of her look. She was very keen on shoulder pads. My favorite- Me too. (laughs) I love shoulder pads. My favorite of her outfits- I'm sorry. (laughs) I love shoulder pads. (laughs) My favorite of one of her outfits is a look that she wore to a polo match. She's wearing jeans tucked into cowboy boots, a charity sweater for the British Lung Foundation, and a blazer. It looks so slow. Wait, I have something to add about uh-huh. that. Not not about Diana, but my mom always makes fun of my dad for tucking his jeans into the cowboy boots. <laughs> he's emulating Princess Diana. Yes, he is. Yeah. And I know he's listening. And- uh-huh. Honestly, I'm for it now. He's slaying. (laughs) (laughs) In terms of more formal wear, she had a few major fashion moments that we must talk about. You may have seen the famous image of Diana asleep at the Victoria and Albert Museum wearing a stunning light purple gown. There's not much information about the dress itself, but it's just really beautiful. I felt that I wanted to talk about it, and the image is going to be in the Instagram she wore it shortly after her wedding, and it still kind of has a bit of that, like, sense of fairy tale to it. She actually fell asleep at this event, and lots of paparazzi took pictures and used this against her, unfortunately. But she was, you know, I would do the same Me thing. Me too, yeah. Like, literally. Of course, we have to move on to talking about the revenge dress. I won't get too much into the details behind this because Jada yeah. hasn't quite gotten to this yet. But she wore the dress in 1994 to the Serpentine Gallery, which was where... Charles admitted to having an affair publicly. 
So, of course, she had to make some statements when she wore the dress. She actually commissioned the dress in 1991. The affair had been going on at this point, and she was obviously frustrated, but she wanted to make a dress that would be risky and scandalous. Mm -hmm. Like, it would have been risky to wear it because it was very revealing for the time and not very in in accordance with the standards that the royals had. Yeah. So it's cut off at the right above the knee, sleeveless, bold black. It sat in her closet for three years after it was made. She was waiting for the perfect moment to wear it. And she was actually supposed to be wearing a Valentino dress to the serpenti- serpentine event. But she instead chose to surprise the press and her unfaithful husband by showing up in the famous revenge dress. It was a very powerful statement, and it was an assertion of independence. The fact that it was black was also important because it kind of has been a color associated with mourning. It's almost as if she Mm -hmm. was mourning the death of her marriage. The dress has been actually featured in the newest season of The Crown. Mm. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So lastly, we're going to talk about the look that she wore on Dodi Fayed's yacht. Again, this is not something I'll get into because I'm sure Jada will talk about this, but after her divorce with Charles, Diana spent the summer with her lover, Dodi. Immediately after the divorce, Diana sold much of her royal wardrobe and donated most of the proceeds to charity, including the AIDS Crisis Trust. Call back to last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While she and Dodie were subject to heavy paparazzi attention, she used that attention to convey a lot of narratives, just as the way she did with the revenge dress. During the summer that she spent on Dodie's yacht, she spent most of the summer jumping off the yacht and swimming. It was kind of a bit of like a freedom era. Yeah. She was unfortunately hunted down by paparazzi. Always. And, yep. And a very famous photo of her perched on, like, the diving board of her yacht was released, which is a very cool picture. And actually, recently, SZA leaked her album cover, and it's pretty much, like, the same pose. Same really? It's cool. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. Around the time of her death, designers were noted for saying that Diana had begun to fully embrace her femininity. She was rejecting the restrictions of the royal, like, fashion code. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. that was cut short. So now that we've got the rundown on Princess Diana's looks, I want to talk very briefly about her impact, and then I'll hand it back over to Jada. Two pieces of media recently have been contributing to our love for Princess Diana, one being The Crown. Diana, I believe, appears in season four, played by Emma Corrin. Corrin says that within the series, Diana's looks are meant to reflect her character development. One can, quote-unquote, trace the trajectory from girl to woman with lots of bumps along the way. Which is very true also of Diana's, like, real-life progression. Mm -hmm. She was quite literally a girl when she was indoctrinated into the royal family. Yeah. And she was forced to become a woman out of uh, survival. Did you make it to season four, by the way? Not yet. Okay. I'm on season two. It came out this, or November, right? No, season five came out. Yeah. Season four and five are both about Diana. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm gonna have to watch it. I know. It's interesting, but... I, wanna, I, just, I was so bored. I want to get. I want to get in there. I want to get. I know. Into I did not board. care. For yeah. The... <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, in the 2021 film Spencer, starring Kristen Stewart, a film that I highly recommend. Literally, go watch it. It's so good. <laughs> I haven't watched it. I know. Please do. Know. It pays great attention to fashion. The story takes place over only a three-day period around the Christmas holidays. 
and it actually takes place on the Sandringham estate, which is yeah. where Diana grew up. And it focuses on Diana's mental anguish at the hands of the royal family, both with both in regards to the public attention that she has been getting and Charles's affair. Mm-hmm. The movie features many outfit changes, and these outfits are meant to reflect Diana's eating disorder as well as her emotional state. So the looks are actually inspired by her real-life outfits that she wore. At one point, Stuart wears a ball gown inspired by a ball gown Diana wore in 1987 to the James Bond premiere, which was symbolic both in real life and the movie because it was one of the first times that Diana actually chose something that she was going to be wearing mm. instead of had the royal family like tell her what to do. So it kind of reflects an attempt for her to claim autonomy. And she also is featured wearing a bold like plaid tweed blazer it's very Christmassy, and it calls back to that country chic look that diana always goes for it even recreates one of diana's nautical looks almost to a t the only difference is that in the film it's yellow probably to fit the color scheme get a yeah. bit better but in real life diana wore a all red nautical sailor look and i just kind of think that's really interesting because if a normal person went outside dressed like a sailor everyone would be like why are you dressed like a sailor yeah but it was princess diana she was challenging the status quo and she was dressing like cowboys and sailors and i love it because she could yeah i think that's so cool so her impact is felt around the world we're always talking about serving you know princess diana looks with high-waisted mom jeans oversized sweatshirts, chunky shoes, you know, the 80s look that has been cultivated by Princess Diana herself. Yeah. So that was the rundown on Princess Diana's fashion. I'm going to hand it back over to Jada. We're going to talk about the rest of Princess Diana's life. Yeah. Okay. I have a really weird structure for this episode, but hang with me. I am going, I'm going to talk about Diana and Charles's family life before I go into how immensely incredible she was at advocating for issues that were often ignored. So bear with me and gotcha. don't think that I'm skipping over things. No. We're good. Mm-hmm. On June 21st, 1982, Charles and Diana had their first child, Prince William. Diana broke a few traditions during her birth, which was entirely in her right to do. Yeah. The tradition was to have a home birth, but she chose not to and actually also had her labor induced. She mentioned in her autobiography that she had to do this because she had to work around Prince Charles's polo matches. Men aren't shit. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The polo matches over a birth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. That's logical. She actually also chose to remain fully awake during the birth. It was the first active royal birth, which was a complete contrast to the Queen's statement that with modern anesthesia, birth had become a sleep and a forgetting. So take that, bitch. (laughs) Sorry, no. When William was born, Queen Elizabeth was quoted saying, at least he doesn't have Charles's ears. <laughs> Straight facts. Okay, this woman knew what she was saying, and she was right. Facts until she says the sim- a similar idea about Meghan Markle's child. Oh, really? Yeah, how she was like... I like, don't follow. I only she, follow Diana. She didn't want Meghan Markle to have... The, she didn't like Meghan Markle because she's a woman of color. And she didn't, oh. want, she didn't want a child in the royal family to be a person of color. Like, Ugh. even though, I mean, the child is a person of color, but I mean, like, yeah, she didn't want the child to be, she wanted the child to be white passing. 
she got her wish yes literally well she's right about the ears yeah (laughs) that's true (laughs) after having her first kid it wasn't all rainbows and sunshine diana actually suffered from postpartum depression which she was very open about in a few interviews they actually didn't know what she had when she had it but later in her life she talked about feeling immense pressure from the public and taking on another role that was new to her She was really humanizing the royal family in a much-needed way. Yeah. In September of 1983, they had their second son, Harry, who has super red hair, as we know, and it was said that Charles reacted to the red hair by saying, oh, God, he has red hair. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Diana made sure to mention that she was proud of his red hair because it was a trait that ran on her side of the family. Mm Mm-hmm. Overall, Diana was a very protective mother. She wanted to raise her kids as normal as possible. She personally took care of her children even as they traveled and would publicly show affection to her children, both of which went against royal tradition. And I'm sure we know this because when you watch the family, they look like robots with each other. Prince Harry speaks to this day about how amazing of a mother she was. He said... One of the things our mother taught William and I was the value of doing good when no one is watching. And I think that encapsulates how amazing of a person she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as a mother. One of her main goals as a parent, as Prince Harry talked about, was that she wanted her children to know how privileged they were. She would take them to places like homeless shelters and hospitals to show them the struggles of real life. One of her most iconic mom moments was in 1981 when she took part in Prince Harry's field day and ditched her shoes during the mother's race and had no care for the publicity of being a royal. Slay. She is such Mm -hmm. a slay. Yeah. She also had a special tradition with her boys. On the weekends, they would go out to McDonald's for a Big Mac and fries and then come back and watch Blind Date. That's fun. It's so cute. Mm -hmm. I just love her. Yeah. She always wanted to make memories for her children and show them as much love as she possibly could. They took a trip to Disney World where she refused special treatment and made her family wait in lines for rides just like anyone else. You know that joke about like how couples in amusement park lines are really (laughs) annoying? Yeah. Imagine you're in line and just like Princess Diana is in front of you. No, I I think I'd like die. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think You're I would. Like about to get on Space Mountain. N- I don't even make it. No. No. I, yeah. w- I wouldn't. I've talked loads about her role as a mother, but I'm going to steer gears just a tad. I'm going to talk about Diana's impact on the public. Unlike many high-ranking monarchs, Diana maintained close contact with common folk. At the heights of the AIDS epidemic, which we mentioned briefly in our last episode, during this time, homosexuality was categorized by the... American Psychiatric Association as a mental disorder. There were lots of homophobia and uneducated people, and the AIDS epidemic just made it even worse. The lack of knowledge led to wild speculation guided by homophobia. Nurses were scared of their patients, they cared for them in isolation while wearing two sets of gloves and gowns, using disposable cutlery and plates and burning bedsheets after use. So they were very much uneducated about this disease. The people affected by AIDS were mostly gay men and drug users. 
Both were already marginalized communities that could easily be blamed for their own misfortune. With this in mind, AIDS became super stigmatized. It was a marker of quote-unquote deviant living. It said that some people with AIDS were glad when they were told that their condition had led to a form of cancer because cancer was something you could tell people without feeling shame. Mm-hmm. AIDS was killing and fast, and it all just kept getting worse. A stigma emerged that HIV or AIDS could be transmitted by casual contact, such as handshake or shared cup. There were many extreme views from people because of this, like establishments wanting to ban people with AIDS, many people with or having or suspected of having HIV or AIDS were also fired. And during this time, there were over 100 cases of employment discrimination each year. Insane. Mm -hmm. The actual problem of AIDS was being ignored and progressive action was not being taken. This is where Princess Diana comes to play. She opened the UK's first specialist HIV and AIDS unit at London's Middlesex Hospital and continuously fought stigma by being photographed shaking hands and hugging AIDS patients and even making statements like, HIV does not make people dangerous to know. You can shake their hands and give them a hug. Heaven knows they need it. You can share their homes, their workplaces, and their playgrounds and toys. Her first royal solo overseas trip was to New York City, and at this time, the AIDS crisis was still at its height. There was a lot of media in America at the time saying that this trip would be spent shopping at New York's most high-end stores. Instead, though, she met with thousands of people, from millionaires to those experiencing homelessness. She famously hated shopping, too. Did she? Mm-hmm. The biggest part of the trip was when she toured a pediatric AIDS ward in Harlem where she hugged a seven-year-old while the world watched. This moment was a pivotal moment for people's views on Diana. As Zoe talked about a bit, she was mostly at this time only seen as a fashion icon and obstruction of traditions, but this moment solidified her to the public as a compassionate modern woman. These children in the hospital were foster kids that were HIV positive, and because of the stigma that it could be passed through casual contact, they weren't being adopted or even fostered. So not only was it pivotal for Diana's image, it also destigmatized AIDS, and these kids started getting adopted more and more. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was said that many royals didn't like what she was doing. To me, it sounded like they were jealous that she was getting so much love from the public, but the queen was reported not being supportive of Diana's chosen cause and telling her to do something more pleasant. Okay, colonizer. (laughs) Yeah. But she was incredibly passionate about advocating for victims of AIDS, and she was incredibly educated in the issues as well. From Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, to Toronto, Canada, she continued to visit patients suffering from AIDS. Not only did she just visit wards, but she also continuously donated to the cause and attended many fundraising events centered on helping fight the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Gavin Hart from the National AIDS Trust was quoted saying, In our opinion, Diana was the foremost ambassador for AIDS awareness on the planet, and no one can fill her shoes in terms of the work she did. And he is 100% right. 
Not only was she raising awareness about AIDS, but also for homelessness, leprosy, landmines, and many other causes. She always wanted to use her social status and power to change her country's views on important social issues that were deemed undesirable for centuries. And her commitment to her community gave her the title as the People's Princess. We are steering gears once again a tad. In December of 1992, Charles and Diana publicly announced that they were separating. Rumors were spreading and spreading fast, as they do. The main rumor was that Charles was involved with his ex-girlfriend, Camilla Bowles. And a month later, Tampon Gate happened. A phone conversation between Charles and Camilla that was recorded in 1989 was leaked to the public, where Charles says he wants to be reincarnated as a tampon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not reading it. No. The Queen... I can't. Tampon Gate. We can't move on from Tampon Gate. Say something about it, please. Like, I'm, I'm just floored. It's yeah. It's horrible. I, I feel like I'm jumping too fast. Like, that we need to talk about Tampon Gate. Like, this is insane. I, I, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's gross. It's bad. Your king wants to be a tampon. Yeah, take that, England. <laughs> Yikes. I just can't. But we're going to move on. The queen formally tells the couple that they should get a divorce in 1996, and that is exactly what they did. Charles was quoted saying that he was, quote, desperate to get rid of her. I'm shaking my head. You can't see it, but I'm shaking my head right now (laughs) in anger. (laughs) In a part of their divorce, it mentioned that Diana was to remain with the title Princess of Wales and got a total of $22.2 million in equal custody of the kids. Diana continued living in Kensington Palace. She started doing things her own way more and more, as we talked about a little bit. She gained a sense of freedom from the royals. She began to redefine herself and her style because she no longer had to stick to the royal dress code, as we talked about in Zoe's Corner. The divorce also gave her more freedom to be a normal parent that she wanted to be. She was able to do more things with her children. And Diana even got into the dating world when she was romantically involved with a surgeon named Hasnat Khan. Things seemed to be getting pretty serious between them. She had taken steps meeting her, his parents and even introducing Khan to her children, but the two weren't meant to last. Diana was later involved with Dodi Fayed, an Egyptian heir who we have already mentioned, whose father famously owned Herod's department store. There is not much about their relationship because, as we know, it had a tragic ending. Ugh. I don't want to talk about her death. Can we just act like she's still alive? (laughs) We're cutting it out. And they all lived happily ever after. Yep, the end. (laughs) Ugh. It's so upsetting. At the age of 36, on August 31st, 1997, Diana died of injuries sustained in a car crash in Paris that also killed her companion Dodi Fayed and their driver Henry Paul. There has always been a lot of speculation on Diana's death, but here are the facts. On August 30th, after Diana and Dodi spent the day together, the couple set out to head back to Fayed's 
Paris apartment in a Mercedes-Benz driven by Henry Paul, who was a deputy head of security at the Ritz. They were also accompanied by bodyguard Trevor Reese Jones. Shortly after the car entered the Pont de l'Alma tunnel, which was less than two miles from where they had come from, Paul lost control of the vehicle. They were seen speeding going 70 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone. They collided into a pillar in the middle of the highway. Paul and Fayed were pronounced dead at the scene while Diana was rushed to the hospital where she later passed away from her injuries. The sole survivor being Trevor Reese Jones, the bodyguard. I'm like actually gonna start. A statement was made by French authorities the Monday after the crash, saying that the driver's blood exceeded the legal blood alcohol limit by three times and was recklessly drinking and driving. And there was another element involved in the crash. Eyewitnesses say that their car was being chased by paparazzi eager to get a photo of Diana and Fayed together. Many conspiracies emerged in the tragic way that she died. Dodi Fayed's father came out saying that he knew that the crash was no accident. His theory was that they were victims of a murder plot involving the British security services and Prince Philip, who wanted them dead before they could announce their engagement. I think there was also a theory that she was pregnant, but I think yeah. like, the autopsy... Yeah, I did read that, and I didn't include it because yeah. it was completely debunked. Mm-hmm. One fact came out that Diana was possibly not given the medical treatment that could have saved her. She was left at the scene far longer than she ever should have been, and the ambulance that picked her up passed a closer hospital on the way to one that was way further away from the scene of the crash, which is very fishy. Another theory was that the British Special Air Services was involved. An ex-soldier of the Scotland Yard allegedly claimed that the princess was murdered by the Special Forces Unit who flashlights using a technique developed to combat terrorists in order to confuse the driver within the tunnel. There was also a conspiracy that Henry Paul was a spy. An ex-M16 officer accused him of being a paid M16 informant. The London inquest heard that Paul was carrying 1,250 pounds, which definitely fueled this fire. None of the CCTV cameras in the tunnel were operating at the time of the crash, which what are the chances of that? Mm -hmm. Another fishy thing. One witness said that she saw a white Fiat Uno with Paris license plate come out of a tunnel right after the crash. Some media identified the driver as an ex-security guard, Le Vanton, who denies any involvement. Others identified a photographer, James Anderson, who died in a car fire in May of 2000, reportedly with a hole in his head. This triggered even more conspiracy theories on him. The Mercedes was found with white paint on it, so this white Fiat Uno theory might just not be a theory at all. We can't forget about the sole survivor of the crash, Trevor Reese Jones. Dodie Fayed's father claimed that Reese Jones knew that the crash was premeditated and did nothing about it. He supposedly even agreed to cover up details after the fact because the Secret Service threatened to kill him. In his account, he suffered major head injuries that made him unable to recall 
to recall anything from four hours before he even got into the car. He said that it was a simple drunk driving accident caused by speed, which is another fishy thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't remember the four hours before you got in the car. No matter what, the people lost a beloved woman that still to this day has an immense impact on our community. Five days after her death, the queen made her first public address, which raised scrutiny among the British public because of how slow she was at recognizing the need to step forward in a country's grief about the death of a princess. Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, told the British media that he had been lied to by palace courtiers about the two princes wanting to walk behind their mother's coffin at the funeral. He had pushed that the children should not have to do it after experiencing something so traumatic. He described the procession as the most horrifying half an hour of his life. That's sad. With no doubt, she was, and still is, loved by millions. On the day of her funeral, thousands lined the streets and millions watched from home. Her brother, Earl Spencer, delivered her eulogy. He addressed the media, calling Diana the most hunted person of the modern age, and claimed that due to this, she had talked endlessly of getting away from England. He also directly addressed Diana's experience in the royal family and the loss of her title. He said she was someone with a natural nobility who was classless and who proved in the last year that she needed no royal title to continue to generate her particular brand of magic. He added, I pledge that we, your blood family, will do all we can to continue the imaginative way in which you were steering these two exceptional young men so that their souls are not simply immersed by duty and tradition, but can sing openly as you planned. This speech did not go well with the royal family. The two princes were the only two to applaud the speech in the royal family, and the queen's right-hand man talked about how it dawned on him that Earl Spencer was having a go at the (laughs) royal family in this moment. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Eight years after the death of Diana, Charles married Camilla Bowles, and Queen Elizabeth actually didn't attend the wedding. She only went to the photos in reception, where she wore white, which was possibly strategic in making a statement that she wasn't too happy about this marriage, but of course it's only a theory. Mm-hmm. Princess Diana's legacy, however, did not end there. The Diana Award was created by her sons to honor her. It is given to young people who show compassion for others, just like Diana did. Her sons continue her legacy. William is working on the ongoing issue of homelessness and is showing his children the cause too. Just like Diana did, William has also continued his mother's work with the Passage Charity in the UK, who has helped homeless people get off the streets for more than 40 years. In 2013, Prince Harry retraced Diana's footsteps by visiting Angola in southern Africa, where Diana made headlines by visiting victims of landmines and walking courageously over a minefield. Harry is also working on creating a charity that works for the victims of extreme poverty and lecithosis, HIV and AIDS epidemic that, as we talked about, was a close cause to Diana's heart. The brothers also kept their mother's legacy alive through their children, each giving one of their children's middle names Diana. 
I hope that you love Diana as much as we do, and I want to end her story with a quote from her. The biggest disease the world suffers from in this day and age is the disease of people feeling unloved. Diana taught the world compassion and love that everyone needs to carry with them in their daily lives. We need more Dianas. Thank you again for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you for all the support you have given us. Thank you to those of you who put us on your Spotify wrap this year. Oh my gosh, yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And from both of us, happy holidays. We will see you in 2023.